This is episode 136 of District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. On today's show, I'm going to briefly talk about some conservation and energy milestones witnessed under the outgoing Trump administration and explore whether or not Democrat Senator Joe Manchin from Ruby Red, West Virginia, could be a bulwark against radical environmental policies when he takes the helms of the Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources very soon. Oh, and I'll briefly talk about why the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline will have very deleterious consequences for energy independence going forward. I won't dedicate too much time to this because I think I'll create a working Google Doc for all of you, my listeners, to access if you'd like to see the full gamut of the accomplishments made from the departments that handle all these issues and also a overview of the legislation that President Trump signed into law. But I figure I would dedicate a few minutes to talking about kind of the consequential but interesting milestones that were achieved under this administration. I think it's still fair to talk about the accomplishments that the media underplayed or sold as something kind of disarming, sold as very extreme and detrimental to the environment, about the obfuscation of various different milestones that happen. If you're just tuning into the podcast and you're familiarizing yourself with the show and some of my work, I was able to have some access to the Department of Interior, EPA, and similar agencies that handle these issues. It took me a while to successfully get a hold into the press shops. I'd been in touch with numerous press staff since the beginning of the Department of Interior under Trump when Brian Zinke was there. They were very consumed with different media hits. And then when Secretary Bernhardt took over, I started to have opportunities to sit down with him. And then I also uh, have included some comments from different secretaries and undersecretaries and uh, sub-agency heads. But I will say that despite some of the recent events that transpired and some of the rhetoric from the top in the last few months. I think Trump's legacy on these issues will be ignored, but I think it's important to talk about it. Overall, I would say sportsmen and women, hunters and anglers, ranchers, cattlemen, and everyone who is a stakeholder in these issues, I think our interests were better represented compared to, let's say, the Obama administration. It's kind of hard to say compared to other Republican presidents exactly were there more achievements. I would say there were certainly more policy achievements under Trump, even though the media suggested there weren't. Obviously, it goes without saying that bills like the Great American Outdoors Act, which were championed by president's daughter, Ivanka Trump, by both parties and many other interests. That was probably one of the most paramount and important and consequential bills to pass uh, within 50 years since this issue was tackled about Land and Water Conservation Fund and addressing the deferred maintenance backlog plaguing the National Park Service. There were different councils created to give hunters and anglers a voice. There were councils before, but I would say that uh, the councils under this administration had people in the industry, newsmakers, industry individuals from different organizations across small and big game, and certainly more voices were heard. There was an emphasis on safe public lands shooting with the Target and Marksmanship Act 
that passed and was signed into law. Also, I believe under Zinke's tenure, the designation of August as a National Shooting Sports Month was very pivotal and interesting. I anticipate that disappearing under the incoming Biden administration. This administration was also one of the first to achieve energy independence, and this kind of stems from all the different agencies because they're all interrelated since Interior does a lot with federal land leases on public lands for oil and gas leases and renewable energy leases. Moreover, another interesting milestone for this administration was the fact that they opened up over 4 million acres of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service lands to hunting and fishing opportunities that were not accessed before. These are brand new opportunities and for the first time opportunities to access national fish hatcheries. So that was really noteworthy. There was also something that really didn't get much press, but the Trump administration established, I'm reading this from Indian Affairs, that said that Trump's administration establishes the first cold case task force for missing and murdered American Indians and Alaska natives. And they created seven offices across the country to handle cold cases in Indian country. That didn't get talked about. How could I forget the moving of the Bureau of Land Management to Colorado? They were trying to reform the Endangered Species Act to make sure that more than 3% of imperiled listed endangered or threatened species do successfully recover. They were able to put a new rule at the end of the last year where they took into findings from scientists, wildlife biologists, who determined that the gray wolf, the lower 48 gray wolf, meets the criteria to be delisted. And that rule went into effect not long ago, but I anticipate with some of the court cases coming out and the new administration coming in, I expect sadly that to be revoked. There were certainly more rules and reforms in place to ensure that uh, kind of like a 10th Amendment federalism issue where there was kind of a gray area for hunting and fishing lands between federal and states uh, that would be deferred to the states. So that was really nice to see. I think that was in the case of Alaska and a few other places. Uh, the WOTUS reform, that helped kind of reform rules where something as innocuous as a puddle of water could be a navigable water and therefore subjected to regulation. And I talked about this on the podcast. I have talked to different people who worked on the legal side and the policy side of this, and I'll try to bring them on the podcast too, but we're going to see WOTUS there. Uh, from the energy standpoint, and I know I'm kind of going all over the place with conservation and energy, but there's a lot of overlap. We were also, like I had mentioned energy independent, the natural gas revolution really did take us a step towards that. And also emissions were down to historical lows. A lot of people were upset when the Department of Energy put out a press release talking about molecules of freedom. But in a sense, this enabled us to kind of free ourselves from the shackle of reliance on foreign oil. I suspect this incoming administration is going to make us reliant on foreign oil, and that is problematic. And also their push to go completely oil and gas free. Also, we had seen NEPA reforms, which are super needed. So there were fewer obstacles for permits to do infrastructure projects and so much more. I will compile a accessible Google document with all of the accomplishments I listed and some I didn't include, but we talked about here on the podcast. So stay tuned for that. I promise to deliver and not just talk about stuff. I like to provide proof of what I say. So that will be in the show notes for you guys shortly. In my new town hall VIP column today, I talked about whether or not we could see Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who is considered one of the last moderate Democrats. This comes in wake of the 
expected news that he is going to be taking the helms of the Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources. He has voted in the past for Trump appointees, especially in the Department of Interior, the Department of Energy, EPA, and agriculture, I think Manchin, and I'm going to link to it, he was one of the few Democrats to kind of break party lines and vote for a lot of Trump's appointees. So he has shown some willingness to reach across the aisle and work with Republicans to advance some of their policy goals. And you can see from some of his statements that they does have a bipartisan streak. Unfortunately, sometimes if pressured, he is also shown to toe the party line. And I'm going to talk more about that for you guys here a little bit, but I'm a little encouraged by some past voting behavior and some past statements from Manchin that leads me to think that he could be convinced and he can be lobbied successfully by Republicans and conservatives to vote more so in line with opposing extreme policies. And he comes from a state where oil and gas reign supreme. And I'm going to read to you from my article a little bit, but you can use my code HOFFMAN, all caps, to access it, and I'll link to it in the show notes. But something to remember, um, kind of why Manchin will exhibit some kind of independent tendencies. Uh, He has always kind of been shepherded as a moderate voice. If you guys remember from, and I don't know if you remember or you were too young to remember this, but I do recall this was early in my political career, that he famously shot a bullet through the cap-and-trade legislation in one of his first campaign ads from 2010. And many people believe he will take a middle path on climate policies. And from the U.S. Energy Information Administration, which puts out all these interesting stats about energy consumption, the reason why I don't anticipate him supporting, repealing, or supporting efforts to phase away from oil and gas Here's why, given different stats. So West Virginia, if you guys don't know, is overwhelmingly reliant on coal-fired electric power plants, which account for about 91% of the state's electricity net generation. The state is also the second largest producer of coal in the U.S. after the state of Wyoming. And it is also the sixth largest producer of natural gas. So given that, and given the fact that he has received money from oil and gas, I don't expect him to completely deviate from what he has practiced. If he were to do that, I argued in my article that he could be really vulnerable in 2024, even though he has very deep ties, he has a lot of trust with his constituents. West Virginia has become an increasingly Republican state. This is evidenced by the fact that the governor switched from Democrat to Republican in 2017. Also in November, the Republican Party increased their majorities in both chambers of the General Assembly. And Manchin only had about a 3% difference between his Republican opponent in 2018. Understands he could be vulnerable. He understands the fact that his state still relies on oil and gas. He also said on numerous occasions that he supports an all of the above energy Policy. Throughout Trump's tenure, interestingly enough, Manchin voted about 50.4% in line with President Trump across the two congressional sessions, the 115th and 116th. Um, and actually, his voting record was tied with Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema, who does exhibit some bipartisan tendencies too. But with the Senate now evenly split, could Manchin deviate from kind of his bipartisan edge? Uh, that'll be interesting to see. And Incoming Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer wrote a dear colleague letter promising, quote, bold legislation to defeat the climate crisis by investing in clean energy 
infrastructure and manufacturing, end quote. But will this mean that Manchin supports something like the Green New Deal? I'm very skeptical of that because in March 2019, when this resolution was presented in the U.S. Senate, Manchin was quoted as saying this in terms of his opposition to it. Quote, while I appreciate the renewed conversation around climate change that the Green New Deal and its supporters have sparked, I think we need to focus on real solutions that recognize the role fossil fuels will continue to play. End quote. He also put out a statement applauding the U.S.'s exit from the Paris Climate Accords. And this agreement, across many different uh, publications, this agreement has been scrutinized because very few participants in this arrangement, fewer than 20 countries of the 190-some-odd signatories, have met their emissions thresholds and expectations. So that's why President Trump took us out of this at the insistence of his advisors. And something also to look out for, especially with nominations coming in, will Manchin be kind of that deciding voice? Will he willingly vote to confirm President Biden, President-elect Biden's Interior Secretary nominee, Representative Deb Hallin, who is a key Green New Deal backer, and she is very open about her opposition to fracking. And he told this to E&E News that I think a fracking ban would be detrimental to her, Deb Haaland, or anyone else who says you are just going to eliminate something. I'll say this. We can innovate it. But to just say eliminating things because you don't like it or you don't think it can be done, that's not the American way and that's not the American and it's not the American spirit. And Manchin is of the belief that if you want to explore clean energy options, you have to weigh and consider minerals, which I think is a position in direct conflict with many in the Democrat chamber today. And in 2019, he said this about the role of minerals and mineral extraction. Quote, renewable energy sources and energy storage play growing and crucial roles in the energy sector. And I kind of dot, dot, dotted this. I'll give you guys and link to the full statement. The common denominator between all these clean energy technologies is a handful of minerals that either occur in limited abundance or only in certain countries around the world. So he recognizes that completely deviating or completely transitioning away from oil and gas and not doing some form of mineral exploration is very deleterious, not only to his constituents, the country at large, but also in terms of global competitors or countries we compete with who are still doing and extracting traditional fuel sources, who are still exploring traditional fuel still exploring and using traditional fuel sources. So I think just past statements, kind of his actions, voting to confirm Republican nominees and more gives us a little bit of hope. And if I'm wrong in my assessment, let me know. But politically speaking, we have seen Manchin pressured, and this doesn't really relate to this podcast, but I suspect he will toe the the party line when push comes to shove. And the third thing I want to talk about is the news that one of the first executive orders of president-elect Biden would be to cancel and block the Keystone XL pipeline. Essentially, this would cancel the $9 billion Keystone XL pipelines permit, which is a lot of money, a lot of jobs lost. And I think that could actually put us in a precarious position when it comes to maintaining our energy independent status. And actually, I made this argument on Twitter that a core constituency of Biden's who are union workers, I believe that was the condition, one of the conditions and stipulations for this pipeline to happen, that it would give preference to union jobs, that a lot of union workers won't have employment due to this. And I'm reading this from 
Politico because it's accessible. It's not behind a paywall. And this kind of goes along his lines of prioritizing so-called climate action immediately. And he will rescind the cross-border permit for TC Energy's Keystone XL pipeline on his first day of office, according to three sources. This move is billed as one of Biden's day one climate change actions, according to a presentation circling among Washington trade groups and lobbyists, a portion of which was seen by Politico. And this was apparently not included in the incoming chief of staff's memo outlining his planned executive actions during the first day of the presidency. And according to CBC News, which is out of Canada, um, this is the latest development in a decade-long fight over the so-called controversial pipeline, and it solidifies a campaign promise the Canadian government had hoped was negotiable. Um, Something that was interesting about this, TC Energy, which would have been responsible for this, had announced that they would achieve net zero emissions across operations once it began running in 2023. There will certainly be implications from this, and we're going to continue to monitor that here and any other energy development. Like I had talked about recently, we're going to see a moratorium, I believe, on federal leases of oil and gas, which will actually lead to an increase in demand for private leases for oil and gas exploration. That's what I'd heard from different people that are very familiar with this type of political play. Um, So we're going to see that, and that's going to prove very complicated for the incoming administration. I personally don't see this as a good move. Thanks for listening to this episode of District of Conservation. Make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement. Make sure you're subscribed to us on Apple Podcasts, where most of our listeners hail from, and leave us some reviews if you like the content you're hearing. Tomorrow, we will be having a firearms roundtable with three of my most trusted go-to people in the firearms industry.